Hello there, and welcome to Kingdom of the Lagos. And today, we're going to jump back into Nazarene Open University, and we're going to be looking at history, and we're going to be talking about the aspiring gospel of freedom. So thank you for joining us. I'm Pastor J. Dylan Proctor, and there are two others with me here in the studio. I'm Pastor Amanda Sparrow. And I'm Pastor Mike Proctor. And Pastor Amanda, would you pray for us as we begin? Sure. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your many blessings and the gift of this time and space that we may come and together and talk about you and uh, who you have called us to be. So be with everything that we do and the words that are spoken. May they truly be uplifting to your people and may they glorify your name. We ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 So today we've got three segments going on and they're all going to be pretty big, pretty fun. And when I say three... Pretty big, pretty fun. I mean, we might only get to two of them, <laughs> but we've got a lot we're going to be talking about. So first things first, we're going to be examining some figures from the history of the American Revolution, and we're going to have some hot takes on them. We're going to learn a little bit about where we came from. And the reason why we're going to be having this conversation is I have realized that the less the church articulates sin and clearly draws the line between what is holy, what is godly, what is part of God's moral and God's natural law. The less we talk about that, the less people are actually interested in liberty from that. I know, like cause and effect relationships. Uh, people are less interested in freedom when they are less knowledgeable about what is good, true, and beautiful. It's, it's sort of an interesting relationship. The less we talk about sin, the less people are interested in moving away from sin. And it applies to the world around us because God created us to be people. John Milton describes freedom as the proof of God's love. And that's something which is really important. You know, you think about a dog. A dog, yeah, you can have one on a leash. You can have it tied. But if it's willing to stay with you, you know it really loves you. It really wants to be with you. If one creature made in the image of God takes their freedom to do the good things of God, you know there's proof of God's love there. And freedom is something very important. It's part of God's law, is God's natural law, and all things of tyranny, they come to break that. And we're going to talk about that by looking at the American Revolution. Then we're going to look at the story of Jairus from Mark chapter 5. But let's begin. Anybody have any hot takes on anything I've introduced so far or any predictors about where the show is going since we know what some of these characters are? <laughs> no. <laughs> Sorry. We're all looking pretty well, good. You know, yeah. I, th I think... I think what we're going to is, is look to the aspiration, obviously, in the title. But sure. when you when you look at um, the lack of conversation about sin, it it does it, it keeps us from seeing the beauty of freedom. And so I think you know, obviously, I hope and that this conversation goes towards the the good news, the gospel that we find in Christ Jesus. Even though we're doing more of a um, you know, American Revolution history type discussion that we can see the evidence of God and the image of God being uh, worked out. Sure. All right, let's begin. We're going to start by talking about a lady named Deborah Sampson. Now, if you have watched the Disney movie Milan, Deborah Sampson is basically the American Revolution version of the Disney movie Milan. You know, in that Disney movie, there's a, a young lady. Her father is called by the emperor to go to war. She feels sorry for her father, and she steps into his place. Deborah Sampson, she disguised herself as a man and stepped into the American army, which was the Continental Army, um, as a private. And she was one who saw battle many times. 
And one of the things which is so aspiring about her story is she went into the military as a teenager at about age 17. And as she went out to fight, she sustained a lot of injuries, actually. I don't know about y'all, but being shot in the leg doesn't sound too appetizing. But Deborah Sampson, in the fall of, I believe, 1778, she got shot twice in the, twice in the leg. Um, whether it was grape shot or whether it was just two successive shots, we don't know. But she got shot twice and had two bullets in her leg. She also sustained a head injury. Mm. And while she was there at the field hospital, she allowed the doctors to tend to her head. But she didn't want to have her identity as a woman revealed from them working on her leg. So she snuck out of the field hospital. And, you know, there's varying accounts on this. But I don't know about y'all. But being shot in the leg twice probably wouldn't make you feel too good. Nor would you probably feel like the sneakiest person at that given moment. But Deborah Sampson, and you know, she's got like two biblical names fused together. Yes, her surname Sampson is spelled with a P, but you can see Sampson, the judge there, and Deborah. You got two judge names there. Deborah Sampson sneaks out of the field hospital and then goes out and she pulls out her knife and her sewing needle, cuts her leg open. Using the sewing needle, she then digs the bullet out. She wasn't able to get both bullets out, but she was able to dig one out with a sewing needle. Then sews herself up and goes back to battle. Mm. Like not just I went and removed a, you know, foreign object from my leg and then went home to kind of rest and heal. Removes the bullet and goes back to battle. And then in the summer of 1783, she is, so she was shot in 1782 is when she was shot. And in 1783, so about a year and a half later, while she was on duty in Philadelphia, she contracts a fever. And then when she's in the hospital, a doctor figures out that she's a woman but keeps her identity a secret. And then after the Treaty of Paris, she's discharged uh, from the honorary. She's given an honorable discharge. And it's a pretty inspiring story because she she enters into the army basically as a, a teenager. She goes, she serves. She opens up her leg, heals it, goes back into battle. And then she goes on to get married. She has three children. She ended up getting her pension for serving in the army. It was difficult for her to get that because it was difficult for everybody to get that. America really wasn't well put together. There wasn't really a great uh, fully put together federal government bureaucracy to handle those things at that point in time. But she does ultimately end up with her honorable service records, getting her pension, and died in 1827, lived a long, full life. And really an admirable, admirable story. But you might wonder, why are we talking about this? And why is this part of our kind of Nazarene Open University talking about holiness and history? Well, John fifteen thirteen says, There's no greater love than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. She saw the aspiration of freedom and put aside all her own personal ambitions, was literally willing to die, willing to persevere, and went out and fought for that, fully willing to have everything in her life laid down so that others could enjoy that high aspiration. And her story is so beautiful. Let's talk about it. hot takes. <laughs> Who would like to go first? Pastor Mike? Well, you know, you was uh, referring to the, the Disney movie and, and uh, you know, after hearing hearing uh, the, the uh, story unfold here, I'm thinking perhaps maybe um, Rambo got their story from here too. But, I mean, you know, the things that she's going through, you know, sewing herself up and all of those things. And uh, it is tremendously, I mean, it's a tremendous story of someone who is willing to sacrifice everything for what? 
for the hope of freedom and a better life, not just for herself, but for others. And for and to me, when I see this, yes, this is, um, you know, truly a very high calling that she must have felt. And uh, it, I like the fact that it did turn out with a good ending, um, uh, but just a, a remarkable story. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. You can't. Oh, no, go ahead, go ahead. Okay. Well, I was just going to say, you know, I think we do see aspiration in this and inspiration in it. And uh, I, I was recalling when we were doing our, our service prep about um, when I was little, one of the things I got in some of our travels across the United States is I had, I think now that I'm reflecting more, it was a coloring book um, about Revolutionary uh, War women. And then I had a, a paper doll set for Civil War uh, heroes who were women. And, but they told, they would tell their stories. And then you, you got to either color or play with the paper dolls. But there's something like very aspirational in this. And as our world is looking towards heroes and there's like all these conversations going around films and particularly like Disney princesses and stuff like that and how they impact the psyche of young girls and women in general. It's like we've got stories that can be inspirational, that can be exciting, that can can invite us into something. And, and like, let's also be very honest, the fact that like, Deborah fought in a in a war uh, secretively because she at that time did not have the same freedoms as men did, and that there are many in stories we're going to go through today even where people fought for freedom specifically because freedoms were being denied them, yeah. and some of them e- did not reach all the freedoms in their lifetime. Yeah. It would take a hundred years, two hundred years. Yeah. Heck, we're still fighting for f- equal freedom for people. Like this is something though, but even though those things, they did not see that 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 full vision of freedom in their lifetime, they were still willing to fight for it. And to, to bring about something, uh, and, and, and I, I wanna be careful too, I, I know you mentioned that Bible passage, Someone laying down their life for their friend. And there's something about that, though. It's more than just fighting. Um, Although that is particularly in this context we are talking about. But there was this willingness that they knew what it was going to cost them. And, And for some of them, it would cost them their life right there in the moment. And others, it cost, she could have very readily just sat back. And she could have stayed at home. And that would have been, that was culturally acceptable. (laughs) Nobody was asking her to sign up. But she saw a need and she knew what she needed to do. And we'll see that with some other stories as well. They had every excuse in the world to sit back and they didn't. And I think that's the thing, like if we're looking for heroes uh, to point ourselves towards, uh, they lived in, in flawed worlds and maybe they themselves were even flawed but they tried and they fought for what they believed was right. And that's always going to turn out better. And, and also the story of Mulan is based on a ballad that may be based on a real person too. So her Mulan story is not totally fictional, we, we think either. But we have so many true stories is what I'm trying to say. Sorry, got off on the tangent. But we have so many true stories we can look to that we don't always have to make ones up to inspire us. Yeah, and I like what Pastor Amanda said because, you know, uh, it is biblical. You know, Moses never entered the promised land mm. uh, that that uh, the, the whole freedom, the whole land of milk and honey there. But at the same time, uh, you know, there there was, uh, this country was formed. And, uh, but yes, there were still, um, you know, it hadn't evolved to the point where 
we were experiencing the freedom where ladies could vote or anything, but definitely a hero for this country. And uh, her story needs to be shared. Her mm-hmm. biography is extremely important. Yeah, and I would say it's willful that we ignore a lot of these stories because people, the the spirit driving our culture wants people to feel like victims and not to feel aspirational. The doctrines of demons, as we find there in First Timothy 4, that Paul is writing about them for a reason. Mm-hmm. Like there's a reason why we are warned against the, the wiles, the powers and principalities, the wiles of evil. What we find here is when you look throughout human history, human history is not storied and filled with history of freedom. It's filled with the history of tyranny, mm. basically since the fall. And as we're going to look at some other characters here, people looked at the American Revolution, which wasn't about a nation. It wasn't actually about patriotism in the sense that you had this allegiance to a nation. The nation didn't exist yet. You know, it's, it's kind of in the name. It was purely a philosophy that they were pursuing at this point. It was a philosophy that really its roots are solidified in the Mayflower Compact, which says, in the name of God, for the glory of God, for the advancement of the Christian faith, amen. Freedom, an extension of the natural law, that you were made in the image of God. And just to kind of posit this out there, I heard somebody the other day say, what makes really men and women unique in the image of God is not love. Like a lot of times we think that it's an ability to love, but you can see a dog love its master. Um, you can see a bird make a bird's nest. What is unique about being made in the image of God is you can actually create on a depth, you can love on a depth that is not found in nature. You don't find birds writing something like one of Tchaikovsky's masterpieces. Hmm. You don't find wolves building the Eiffel Tower. You don't find that level of depth where people aspire to a level to take their natural gifts, whatever they may be, because people have a wide range of gifts, to take them and do something which is more than just a pre-programmed, simple replication, to really create on a depth that is beyond just kind of rising to a certain point and then kind of concluding like a bird rising to the point where it can make a nest and then it's kind of done, but really going beyond that and saying, how can the nest be beautiful? Mm. How can it have something truly unique applied to it? And the idea of freedom, this the whole philosophy and creed that was behind here, you know, people like Deborah Sampson, they saw this cause, they saw this pursuit of freedom as the vehicle for something beautiful which had not really been seen in the world before. And you can't disconnect it from the Mayflower Compact. You can't disconnect it from the Enlightenment. You can't disconnect it from the philosophy of Christianity which unfolded where Jesus sees a man called Matthew, where Jesus sees a woman at the well, and she's not just whatever group that you might assign to as the world, that the world wants to see us are, but as creatures made in the image of God who have a soul, and that soul matters. And the quality of life for the people with that soul matters, like a lot. Mm -hmm. Like God cares about that. Pharaoh don't care about that. Caesar doesn't care about that. The Pharisees don't care about that. (laughs) But God does. And says, you should be able to aspire to have good things. You should be able to be freed from your sin. The whole declaration of go and sin no more is not a rude, like chafing. It's a gift. It's grace. It's grace. Mm-hmm. It's you can be freed from that bondage. Like mm-hmm. we have forgotten that slint, that sin, and here I am mixing words, <laughs> slin. Sin, it is a bondage. Mm-hmm. It's a captivity. It's a suffering. All right, any other thoughts before we move on to the next character? Oh, man, 
We're like 15 minutes into this. We were supposed to be <laughs> done with this segment in 15 minutes. We're going to have fun. If anyone's out there, thank you all for joining us. Let's talk about Joseph Warren. So Joseph Warren, he had the official title of being a major general in the Revolutionary War. So the American, uh, con- the well, my, my brain has stopped, the Continental um, Army there. <laughs> so he actually chose to be a private even though he was commissioned as a major general. He's known for some famous things, such as enlisting Paul Revere and William Dawes in April of 1775 to leave Boston and spread the alarm that the British were coming. But what I want to talk about today with Dr. Joseph Warren, because he was he was a physician, is his satire. We in the church, we need to understand and appreciate satire. <laughs> and... Dr. Joseph Warren, he would write letters. He would write broadsides. He was always writing documents, and he would publish them out in broad daylight to really mock people who were doing wicked things. Hmm. And I want to read a quick little excerpt from one of his writings. So he, he kind of laid out this piece one time. He published it in a newspaper calling out some of the, the people who were loyalists to, to England who had kind of made their cases that they were, you know, God has anointed the king, he's the head of the Anglican church, and, you know, he's good and he's flawless and infallible and all this stuff. And under the pseudonym A True Patriot, Dr. Joseph Warren makes out a case for if you're such benevolent people, then why do you levy these these taxes and things like this? Why don't you actually respect the people that you're supposed to be serving? Why don't you actually care about the people instead of just exploit them? And he ultimately concludes his letter by saying, If such men are God-appointed, then the devil is the Lord's anointed. Hmm. Signed, a true patriot. And his basic (laughs) argument is, if these things are actually of God, then guess what? So is the devil. Hmm. And it's it's just beautiful, the satire that he wrote. He made so many people mad. (laughs) Um, He obviously conged out the king quite a bit, King George, but had a lot of people really mad. But the satire was very potent, very effective, and I actually might argue that may have been really his best contribution because it's kind of sort of like the Babylon Bee does in our modern world. Satire is able to pull out a lot of stuff which is true, which is oftentimes hard to argue against people because they're not really being logical, they're not really interested in debate, but satire can oftentimes cut deep enough to the truth that it exposes it in a way that really can't be refuted. So any thoughts on that, on satire? Well, I think it's probably, uh, you know, for a lot of people who are thinking, and it gives them a voice to, to the revelation of the true evil that is going on there. What I th- like about uh, the biography concerning him is that uh, it's not just words, but there is this humbleness, uh, even though he's calling out evil, but he, he goes in as a private um, not looking for power and authority, but really looking to serve. And that's Christ-likeness. That's the image of God that we see that God came and came to serve, not just to, you know, some type of power-seeking like, like he's calling out here. And so, uh, you know, again, this is someone that uh, is a, you know, American hero, but at the same time, the satire is very important. And we, you know, we see that um, being a useful tool uh, 
as you mentioned, the Babylon Bee. There's a lot of stuff that is obviously fictional, but he write they write in a way that brings out and exposes a lot of truth. Yeah. Yeah, and and I think what's interesting and in, in just and especially in in that period and like you were saying earlier, kind of at the I guess the end of the Enlightenment period. I'm not 100 percent sure when that time ended but anyways <coughs> there seems to me. be this really high focus in some of this kind of style of, of as we're trying to think and talk and converse <laughs> about um you know what it means for 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 humanity <coughs> to be that which they were created to be and of course they would have varying opinions on this uh, for different philosophers but to write in such a way that invites people to think more deeply and sometimes you're right we only sometimes we're, we can only be pushed to think deeply when we're actually pushed. Um, and, and so, and I think also what's kind of funny about this is, uh, or at least the sentiment that he, he is conveying, this is the reason why we have a lot of the denominations we do in America, uh, especially Methodism. Uh, John Wesley never set to create a denomination. He actually gets in trouble with the Anglican church because he ordains people and he was not a bishop. He was not one who should have ordained people. But even then, he was trying to reconcile those differences. And the reason we have Methodism now is because John Wesley said, you got to listen to the king. And all the Methodists in America were like, nope, uh, we're fighting him. And that's why we have that denomination and, and, and many denominations like that. Um, and listen, John Wesley is, is, is in heaven. I, I don't know, probably. But he, he still had to deal with what it meant to follow Christ and also what it meant to be a citizen within a particular country and what that meant. And I think a lot of people in the U.S. in the Revolutionary War said, you know, if they were Christians or deists or some kind of version thereof, they had to realize that there were some ideals that were higher than national loyalty. And that can be a very dangerous place to be, but they realized their priorities. And then they enacted it. Yeah. And when I say it's a dangerous place to be, because it can be dangerous for your own livelihood. These people risk life and limb for this ideal. And again, they had to kind of work that out. And it's taken 200 plus years for us to continually be working out. What does it mean to, to live out this proclamation that all men are created equal? Yeah. Um, we're still figuring that out. But each of us have to decide how we're going to convey these ideas. And it just, it kind of blows my mind how much was written during the Revolutionary War by people like this or even uh, Alexander Hamilton and, and, and other writers. I'm trying to think of uh, common sense. Um, Thomas Paine? Thomas Paine. Thomas Paine. Like there's just all these writers. That's, that's all they did. And, and maybe not just all they did. And some of them were also fighters. But the way that you can convey these messages that calls people to something more than where they are yeah. and still recognizing though as much as people need to aspire to more things you also have to tear down the structures that are keeping people away from yeah. being that which they were created to be so there's this this whole dynamics going on and uh, uh dr joseph warren the particular person we're talking about i think did it very well and i love that little phrase because uh, um, I also have heard people throw out something in Paul writes, I believe, in the Romans about we got to respect our leaders. And you're like, yeah, let's respect them. But if they're acting a fool, like it's also our judge, our job to judge and call out. I mean, prophets did that all the time. And, and then like God's anointed David got called out by a prophet. So like what, what makes us think that whoever our current or previous leaders have been 
that they're somehow better than that. So I, I really enjoy the story and the com uh, the quote of, of Dr. Joseph Warren. Yeah, and to kind of Paul, who writes the word in Romans 13, you know, give honor to whom honors do, pay taxes to whom taxes are due. He gets killed because he's not going to give all honor to Caesar. Mm-hmm. There comes a time when you do define. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Peter also tells people to, you know, obey human institutions there in his first letter, First Peter chapter 2. But Peter also gets killed because... And, and some traditions has them both killed at the same exact time. So, like, yes, yeah, yeah, no, this is the end of this is eventually um, we, we live in the world. There's no denying that. And we live under worldly rulers. Yeah. But and at some point, these two kingdoms are going to come up to each other and we've got to decide where we stand on it. That's right. And that's really where things get interesting, because there's a lot of times anything that you put above God in the Ten Commandments is, is an idol. So if you put a nation above God, it's an idol. But a lot of people in rejecting the idolatry of a given nation will turn to globalism, which globalism is quite literally the ultimate form of worldliness. Worldliness, and it's in the name. Like the demons in hell rattle their chains in laughter. They're like, you, you have literally aspired to the ultimate form of worldliness. It's in the name of what you're pursuing because you, you've said the goal is the world. And we often remember that we are fallen creatures and there needs to be restraints against evil. And when you see something like the Tower of Babel, where God actually divides people up, this is done as a restraint against evil so that there won't be one person who's over the whole world because that, that turns to a, a monstrous hellscape very quickly. Every time we, we see this throughout history, you see empires get really big. They become tyrannical. Like that, that happens. We, we can even see it right now with big tech and things like that. These massive companies which operate not like private businesses, but they operate like kingdoms. Mm. They, they really do operate like kingdoms. Like you, you can see people like Zuckerberg or Jack Dorsey, uh, Facebook and Twitter, they act like kings who have their subjects who come to them. That, that's how these things act. And even taking the, the conversation away from just physical nations and you take it into these other territories where people carry out their lives, there need to be things higher than just any sort of worldly, tangible pursuit. Anything you put above God becomes an idol, and everything has to be put in its proper place. And when we get back and we start studying some of these historical figures, we really start to learn how to put them in their proper place and how to continue those aspirations and try to tweak things and move things, cast out evils, advance certain things, use worldly things as worldly things meaning this is a tool this is not a thing of eternal value so if it needs to be discarded then well it needs to be discarded putting things in the proper place with that let's get on to thaddeus kozieski no we're going to do dr cuffy saunders first i've got my my notes over here (laughs) so the next character we're going to talk about dr cuffy saunders who was born in south america He was brought to the U.S. as a slave, and he worked under a variety of different masters. One of the most noteworthy masters he had was a doctor. And while a lot of people, even in the modern world, who might be a a nurse or something like that, in the ancient, or I guess not really ancient, (laughs) but in the former times, you'd have a lot of slaves who really kind of took on the the role of being like a nurse. Uh, Cuffey actually learned the medical trade and. By that, we mean learned it proficiently enough that he himself was able to replicate his master's work as a doctor, learned a lot of the skill, had a lot of medical prowess. And 
He went on to serve other masters, which is where he eventually took the last name Wells. But when the American Revolution began, he undertook service in the Continental Army as a private with the hope that afterwards he would become emancipated. Well, during his time in service, he he took the name Saunders because that's the name he wanted as a free man. And it's interesting that while he was still serving, one of his commanding officers wrote a letter of commendation about his service. And I don't remember who it was to, if it was to another officer or whatnot, but they wrote a letter of commendation, if I can speak, uh, describing him particularly as a free man. And they, they don't describe really his old name at all, but Cuffy Saunders as a free man, like even though he hasn't, the war hasn't been won, he hasn't been technically emancipated yet. He was recognized as a free man long before that, which is really interesting. But he, his his story really shines when you start to look at Valley Forge in the year of 1778. And if you understand the series of events in the American Revolution in 1777, General George Washington suffered a terrible defeat at Philadelphia which was one of the capitals, the capital of the U.S., or before it was U.S., the American colonies. It changed quite a bit during the Revolution. It wasn't as established as it is now. They suffered a terrible defeat, so they're demoralized. There's a lot of sick men. Obviously, people have died. They're there at Valley Forge in a very bad place. Well, one of the things they were in heavy need for was people with medical skill. And Cuffey, who was at the time a private, quickly began acting in the capacity of a doctor as a medical assistant and just various odds and ends. And he became known as Dr. Cuffey there in that period and would go on throughout the war continuing to be very proficient in medicine and being known as Dr. Cuffey, Dr. Cuffey Saunders throughout the, the rest of the war. And when the war was over, he was indeed a free man. He went, got married, purchased three acres there in Connecticut, and though, unfortunately, he died of influenza in 1788, he did have a son, Prince Saunders, who went on to attend Dartmouth. And Prince Saunders did a lot of important things, uh, both in the black education system and also throughout America and really the, the founding and setting up of America. Prince Saunders was instrumental in all that. But it's a really inspiring story of someone who started off as a slave but aspired to go higher and higher, not just for himself but for others, to build up things for his wife and his son. Um, even as a doctor, kind of taking that stance that says, these who are fighting with me, I'm going to care for them. I want to give life to them. I'm not just somewhere here to be resentful or mad or feel like the world has is, is just perpetually made me into a victim and I just want to lash out at the world, but looking to give life to those around him, to give good things to others. And he's fighting in a war, so he could very well die. Seeing his service, seeing the, the gifts he gave to others, his aspirations, is so aspiring. And the legacy that he left behind is pretty pretty cool. So any thoughts on that, Pastor you Mike? Know, you know, I think one of the, the most aspiring things is that there's many uh, barriers that he has to cross. And sure. yet he doesn't let any of them hold him back. In fact, I think those barriers might have what made him such... Uh, a powerful man that he was and able to to medically treat everyone there was this desire that went not only to educate himself by in his role as, with uh, different masters and everything but that the point of serving others to bring life what a beautiful story uh, there but it no there is all these barriers that all these hurdles that he has to uh you know 
to to get through and to um, really probably not as easy for him as others, but yet he continues to to reach and it makes him better and better as and that's the way I read this story. Yeah, well, it's something that we do find. God takes things which are meant for evil, and slavery is something which violates the natural law of God. It is evil. Um, it never was easy for him. And so, you know, by being hard, it made him uh, truly sharper um, and uh, really just a tremendous instrument during that time frame. Yeah. Well, it kind of reminds me of St. Patrick. St. Patrick was known for not being able to read well, so he had to read Scripture slowly, and therefore he became the most proficient at Scripture. <laughs> um, we, The only person that we know from the Isles of, of Written, those writings from that century, from St. Mm-hmm. Patrick. Man, any thoughts on... On Dr. Cuffey Saunders? Well, and I think it's already kind of been said before, but again, I'm kind of reminded of, you know, Hebrews 11 and 12, the the faith chapter, and then leading into this idea that that those who who often have, we remember, and who have fought and and worked so hard uh, for whether it's freedom in in these stories, the American Revolution, or in our scripture to to participate in in the story of God as, as the people of God, um, they don't always get to see it to its fullest extent, right? And 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 Doctor Cuffey Wells, he he fights and he wins his freedom and the freedom for his wife and his son, but his wife and son still had to deal with with various forms of oppression, and and yet they were able to do great and amazing things, and uh, that by no means belittles the the horrors that they had to go through, but um piece by piece, little by little. And I think for us, and this is where Hebrews 12 then takes us and calls us, says, okay, since we, you know, are therefore surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, and this is, uh, you know, Pastor Amanda's paraphrase now, um, what are you going to do about it? Yeah. And and, and that's what each generation has to look at. And we have been given such a wonderful gift to those of us who live in the United States. We have hard-fought freedoms. Okay. What are you going to do about it? And and that... You also, is it Braveheart? What are you prepared to do? No, uh, no, the Untouchables. I don't know where you're going I, with oh the gosh. quote. I, I'm I mean, well, you have, you have Braveheart who's, you know, they can never take away our freedom. Um, and then, I don't know, Untouchables is uh, the Chicago wave. They yeah, put, it's, it's a totally different movie. Forget <laughs> my, my references. Um, what you find here, you know, in, in one of the things that is sad and... I've been reading from Psalm 94 a lot. It's a beautiful psalm. It's a very aggressive psalm. Mm. Um, It is the psalmist crying out for God's vengeance because evil has had its foothold in the world, and the psalmist is kind of beat up by the fact. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that he he talks about is there are those who revile the heritage. They have ingrates, people Mm. who are ungrateful of the things which have, have brought before you. And the psalmist writes about that, kind of pleading with God that people would be brought to their knees to be grateful for where they're at. We, we really have two different perspectives in which we can take when we look at this. When we can be depressed by it or we can be inspired by it. Mm. And generally, the wiles of hell don't want you, don't want you to know history at all because they, the chances are that if you see people who are aspiring, that might move you to inspire, aspire to. And they, don't, they just don't want that. And people have been robbed of aspirations because we don't see the aspirations of those who came before us. Cuffey Wells saw the American Revolution as offering freedom 
in a way that really wasn't found anywhere else in the world. And when you look at his own history, um, which he was from South America, is where he was originally sold from. It, I mean, terrible, heinous stuff. But yet he saw the American Revolution was the vehicle ultimately to freedom. And after he wins that freedom, he sees that America is actually the ultimate, the, that has the potential to bring freedom for his, his family. That there's potential there, that this is something beautiful worth pursuing. And to be inspired by that, to, to learn from where we're at, and to have gratitude and to build upon that is, is a serious call. And we in the church, we need to have meaningful conversations about this stuff. You know, mm-hmm. the Church of the Nazarene, Nazarene Essentials, we're here for meaningful worship. We need to be like seriously talk about this stuff and actually open the history books and learn about where we come from and see where we need to be going. And put things in their proper order, put them in their proper place. Again, most critical thinking can be defined as just putting things in their proper order. It's not about either ors, but it's about mm-hmm. this goes here, this goes here. Some things go below the mark and they are rejected. I mean, like there's there's mm-hmm. evil stuff, which you say, no, gone. But putting things in the proper order. Pastor Mike? Well, I like what Pastor Amanda said on her paraphrase of, you know, we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses and this is what they do. What are you going to do? You know, yeah. I, I, I like that. But, you know, there, there is this understanding that we have had those who have come before us, have been great people of faith, who have, um, you know, it never was easy for them. But at the end of the day, we have been given this great gift of where their faith has taken them. What are we going to do? The torch has been passed on. And what hill are we willing to die on? That's the question. And we see those great men and women of faith who have really, you know, laid their lives completely out there to so that those generations following can find this freedom and love of, of the kingdom of God coming and breaking into this world. And so, you know, the, America, you know, they talk about it being a, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, what do you? What do they call it? A um, an experiment? Yes, the American, the great the American, American the great American yeah. experiment. I guess that's what I'm thinking of. But you know, and truly, they had such faith and believing that this is going to emulate the kingdom of God, where freedom comes, and and you know, evil is cast out, and and you know, this is just a beautiful. A place where people have literally put their lives on the line so that uh, we can receive this wonderful gift we've got. Let us not take it lightly. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and it is a gift meant for others. I mean, all Mm -hmm. of these people that we're looking at, they they signed up for something which would bring death, quite certainly to a great many of them. And it was all just a, a basically a lottery every day. And even if you didn't die from being shot, you might get dysentery. Mm -hmm. You might get influenza yeah. you might have a fever might have some inexplicable disease that kills you quite quickly because it's it's not a clean environment anymore the last man we're going to talk about is thaddeus kozieski and that's right his name is wonderful to see it spelled out i am not pronouncing the polish the polish version of thaddeus we're we're going with thaddeus kozieski so he was born in poland and he was a noble man in poland And he could have done a lot of great things in Polish politics. However, he had this interest in freedom that was in conflict with the popular sentiment of the Polish royalty. So Poland in this time, it was a little bit democratic, a little bit royal. 
they would get together and they would vote on a king, but they still had a king and it still was a little bit corrupt, a little <laughs> bit tyrannical. And they were still under the boot of Russia in one way or another, even though they're not officially like an annexed part of Russia at this point in time in history. Russia kind of is known for being a little bit of an aggressor and a tyrant throughout history. Just a bit. <laughs> just a bit. Just a wee bit. Well, Thaddeus Kosciuszko wanted liberty for his people in Poland. He wanted them to be free from the influences of Russia. He wanted those who were his brothers and sisters there in that nation to be able to experience that. But it really wasn't happening. And unfortunately, he was exiled from Poland. Um, coincidentally, his, his first exile from Poland happened to do because he wanted to do a lope with a girl that was um, a Polish general's daughter. That didn't go so well, so he got sent out. And he finds himself in America. And one of the things that's really ph phenomenal about his story is he took his military education and military academy experience in Warsaw and also in, in Paris. He spent time in, in France. He, he helps a lot with the Continental Army, the Continental Congress, putting together a lot of things which we might call the key to America, things like West Point, the fortification thereof. He helped really just be an architect of some of the structures of the American Revolution. And he didn't see a lot of exciting wartime stories like the characters we've talked about now. Um, Deborah Sampson, you know, cutting herself open, Cuffy Wells being a, a field doctor. Joseph Warren also, he actually did die in battle. I know he didn't really get into that story. He, he wanted to be a private rather than a general, and he ended up dying in battle. Kosciuszko didn't really have a lot of those experiences, but he was nonetheless very important. And after the war is over, after things have been won for the Americans, he finds himself back in Poland, and he really wants to take the freedom that was aspired for in America and bring it back to those in Poland, but he's never really able to do that. And you got to realize he wanted his own homeland to be blessed, but it never was, was really the means, motive, and opportunity weren't there for that. Mm. So really as his dying legacy is he gets in contact with Thomas Jefferson and he authorizes Thomas Jefferson. He, he basically leaves him in charge of his legacy and estate and says, when I die, my funds are going to be used to purchase slaves in order to grant them freedom and to, you know, purchase them their freedom, provide them education, set them up to live. And that's what he did. It's a pretty phenomenal thing. And you find that his motivation really was for that higher ideal of freedom. He desired that. He spent some time in some exiles, some prison camps. He spent some bad times in Europe. But ultimately, his pursuit of freedom went back to bless a lot of people in America. Um, and people who had been slaves to be freed, to be given that that liberty, that education. So it's a really, really cool story. Pastor Mike? You know, I think when you opened up the uh, the podcast here with, uh, or you know, this episode about talking about the dog and, and uh, you know, how it's capable of loving and, and all these different things. But the thing that sets apart human beings uh, as being created in the image of God is the ability to create um, in such wonderful ways and and the ability to think and so you see this uh thaddeus i'm not even going to attempt to pronounce his last name <laughs> but but you see him being a an architect an engineer um and using that but beyond that you see the desire for freedom and not only wanting to set slaves free 
because freeing them without the education and the trade to make a living is not truly freedom, that it goes much deeper than that. And that is truly, I think, something that's inspirational and aspirational is to see that there is this uh, ability that we are all called to learn a trade, to yeah. be able to, um, you know, not only take care of ourselves, but to give something back to others. Mm-hmm. In other words, free them so they can serve and free others. What a, it's a tremendous story here. No, it's not a war-type story like some of the others, but indeed it is very um, inspirational and, and truly a, a, a hero. And it, it, well, it shows you the motivations behind it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And also keep in mind, he was back in Europe when he sets up Thomas Jefferson to do this. He would never meet these people. Mm-hmm. They would never meet him. They would never know anything about one another here on this life. Mm-hmm. But well, it wasn't about him. It was about something bigger right. than him. And I, yeah. I think that's the key yeah. that we can really see each and every one of these people that we've looked at. Yeah, mm-hmm. sure. Yeah, well, and I, th- I think that's the, the thing is, you know, uh, God offers freedom and invites people into the story of freedom, but then as much as they are offered to come into the story, they are also commanded and given mission to go out, right? So this sure. is not, this is like, this is what sets God apart from Baal or any of the, the other ancient gods that the pe- uh, people of Israel will encounter is all those gods want to hoard power and they teach their people to hoard power and how you manipulate others so that you can hoard resources and power. And yet this God says, I'll journey with you. Like if you're slaves in, in Egypt, I'm there with you. If you're uh, troublemaking wanderers in the desert, I'm there with you. If you go into the promised land and someday become a great nation, I will be there with you. And, and, all of this is because you are to be a people who are blessed so you can bless the world. And, and there are, so we hear in these fantastic stories, people who looked around them, and especially in this story, someone who very rightly could have just sat back and enjoyed his exile in France. Now, granted, France was gearing up for its own revolution at that time, so it maybe was probably good he got out of there, but for the most part, could have just chilled and yet looks around at his, at his circumstances and says, what can I do? And that's also the amazing thing. He goes back to Poland. Like, being exiled is not a small matter. He goes back to Poland, endures all these hardships because he believed that there was something that needed to be shared. And he could not be hoarded or kept to himself. And it, it's just phenomenal. Um, I think, and again, we hear these stories. They are inspirational and aspirational. And we really, it does come to us then to say, okay, where do we see the things in our world that we need to go to and do the hard things and the difficult things and risk life and limb to make sure that freedom is for everyone. And it's not going to be easy because for some of us, it's going to take us out of our, our comfort zone, our homeland. And for some of us, it means going back to our homes, to the difficult places. Because sometimes I think the most difficult places is our homes um in our and i mean either whether that is the physical building in which our the nuclear family resides or just our hometowns um where god just calls us to say hey guess what you've got to go there and be my means of grace i want to build off what amanda said by going back to genesis 12. she kind of referenced this but 
the whole idea, when God comes to Abraham and Sarah, who were at first Abram and Sarah, he says, Go now from your home country, your people and your father's household to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And to all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. These people that you find here, these four characters we've talked about, they all understood those who I bless will be blessed. I'm going out to bless others. Hmm. And I just wanted to add that scripture. There's kind of a commentary. <laughs> just make sure that, because yeah. there's a connection there between that that covenantal calling that is placed on Abraham and Sarah. Mm-hmm. You, you do find a reflection there of that. Pastor Mike? You know, I think when we see this humbleness, we see just a tremendous amount of generosity, too, that is coupled with this. I think if you you look at it from just a very shallow point, you don't get that. But when you dig deep in these stories, you see a a tremendous amount of generosity. And, and, and you know, I think that's something we need to understand as Christians. We are called to be generous. Uh, The blessing that we receive, let us pass that blessing on. We definitely see that in Thaddeus. All right. Well, we've gone a long time on this segment, 50 minutes. <laughs> oh, my. So we're going to wrap up the next segment in less than 10 minutes. Okay. And we'll be back here in a moment, and we're going to talk about Mark 5, Jairus. And we're going to just create a composite of Jairus's household, basically. So we'll be back really quick. Alrighty, thank you for joining us here at Kingdom of the Logos, where we look at just about everything, actually. So let's go to the Gospel according to St. Mark, chapter 5, and we're going to be talking about Jairus' daughter. We're getting close to Father's Day, and we wanted to look at some of the interesting things which happen throughout Bibli- the biblical text regarding some fathers and how they, they handle their children and bring their children before God. Well, we have a father here whose daughter was sick, and he literally brings his appeal directly to Jesus, like Jesus in the flesh. And in Mark chapter 5, verse 22, it says, Then one of the synagogue leaders, named Jairus, came, and when he saw Jesus, fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, saying, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. And so Jesus went with him. Pause for a moment. We don't know a lot about Jairus yet. We're going to try to figure that out. We're going to try to put together a composite real quick. So just be thinking, what do we know about this man? Let's pick up in verse 35. Jesus, actually, before we pick it up in verse 35, let me explain why we're jumping in verse 35. A woman comes to Jesus who is bleeding, and she touches the hem of his garment. She gets healed. Jesus turns around to deal with that situation, and he blesses the lady. And while Jesus is speaking that, that's where verse 35 picks up. It says, while he yet spoke, There came from the ruler of the synagogue's house a certain man which said, Thy daughter is dead. Why troublest thou the master any further? Now let's think about this. Why is it that the servant that comes from the synagogue's house, the synagogue leader's house, why does he refer to Jesus as the master? And I know some translations will say teacher or something like that. I have the King James here. But he has a certain amount of respect for Jesus, meaning there's been something going on in this household which has been elevating Jesus hmm. for a while. Verse 36, As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he saith unto the ruler of the synagogue, Be not afraid, only believe. 
and he suffered no man to follow him. This is just beautiful. Jesus suffers none of them to follow him, except for Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and seeing the tumult. Again, they got a whole maelstrom going on here. It's bad. Mm. They have whipped up a, a hurricane. And reasonably so, a child has died. And they came in, they wept, and they wailed greatly. And when he come in, he said unto them, Why do you make this ado and weep? The damsel is not dead, but sleepeth. And this is where things get really interesting, because by all the knowledge of the world, a child has died. That's where they're weeping. Mm. But Jesus comes in and informs everybody, hey, she's not actually dead. And what do they do? I love the phrase after this. It's a prepositional phrase, but it's also one of like geographical importance. And they laughed him to scorn. Like they, they verbally assaulted Jesus with laughter and sent him out to the domain and territory of scorn. <laughs> and they laughed him to scorn. Now, then, they think he's crazy. I think they think he's crazy. Oh, but yeah. they, they, you know, they, they're ridiculing. Uh, and why would the gospel, why, why would Mark include this? Yeah. Hmm. But when he had pulled, put them all out, he took the father and the mother of the girl and those that were with him, and he entered where she was lying. And when he took the damsel by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumi, which is interpreted, Damsel, I say unto thee, Arise. And straightway the girl rose and walked, for she was at the age of twelve years. And they were astonished with a great astonishment, and he charged them straightly that no man should know it, and he commanded that someone should give her something to eat. So I love there in verse 43, you like get something very serious like, tell no one. Also get her a snack. Like it, there's, a, a, there's a nice tension there. Cheesecake. <laughs> Maybe a little cheesecake. Yeah. Pastor Amanda, lead us on this. What do we know about Jairus because you know there's a lot of barriers it's not popular for a leader of the synagogue to like Jesus help us out let's let's put together a composite of this guy well yeah and I think like you said he's a leader of synagogue we're not entirely sure which synagogue particularly or maybe what the his, his uh, particularity within the the political landscape of, of first century uh, Judaism was but being a synagogue leader he was probably a Pharisee um, which probably puts him at some kind of uh, disagreement with Jesus. The powers to be were not too happy about this particular rabbi, master, teacher. And so you've got a lot going on and just simply, you know, and although, and I thought I had read some tradition about him and we couldn't find it as we were preparing for this lesson uh, today. And so really we don't, know much about him other than being a synagogue leader and yet there seems to be these little indicators that pastor dylan has already kind of pointed out as we as he read throughout the scripture that for some reason somehow uh jairus is beginning to pick up that this rabbi this teacher this jesus this carpenter uh, may be more than just all those things and there is some kind of conversation that is happening that even the servants of his household or maybe not even, because they may have been more aware about what's going on in that house than anyone else. But the whole household seems to be consumed with this conversation of Jesus as teacher, as master. Yeah, I think there there is that element there. You see the wailing and stuff going on later. Those are probably professional wailers who are not people normally at the household or extended family or things like that. But with the Which one also, that come, what a job. <laughs> but anyways. Yes, what a job. Um, what a job indeed. But oh, now I'm tempted to go on a bunny trail. <laughs> Keeping things on track. When when you see the man come 
to say, hey, don't trouble. Like Jesus is a big deal. Like mm-hmm. don't don't distract him anymore. I've, I've got some bad news. She's passed. We need to just go home and, and sort out our affairs. But but Jesus, of course, he hears all this and says, be not afraid, only believe. But but the sort of reverence that the messenger has here is pretty important to me because it seems to indicate that the reason why this leader of the synagogue, Jairus, is willing to go out on a limb and, you know, put aside all the politics of the day because, believe it or not, you know, in the year 2021, politics have become religious. They have. Just period. They have. People treat them like religions. But that's actually not new. That's actually been going on throughout the world pretty much since the fall. <laughs> People have always been doing this. It, it's a political issue to go out and recognize Jesus as Lord. It's a theological issue. It's a social status issue. Like there, There's a lot of, of things to keep you from wanting to go do that if you're someone who has a cushy job as a ruler among the synagogues. Mm. But this man is willing to do it. And you might ask, well, was it the death of his daughter willing that pushed him to this limit? Maybe, but it seems that it's a little bit more than that because the whole household is already to the point that when a messenger comes, he says, you know, don't trouble the master anymore. There's a sense of reverence there that I don't think you would get without there being an existing conversation going on in that household about Jesus and it being an overall good one, not just one of scorn and mockery like you get later with the the professional mourners. You do find there's something going on here that is good, though I don't want to diminish the fact that if someone does come to, to God and to Jesus in a tragedy, that is still good. It's mm. always good to come to Jesus. Yeah. Let, let that be laid down. It's always good to come to Jesus. But it seems that there's some actual deep things that have been going on for a while. Mm. It is what I get when I, I have a composite of, of Jairus, that there's been something going on for a while. And it kind of blesses me to see that because... In order for a leader of the synagogue to do that means you're going to have to put aside your own titles, your own fun, your own cushy place among the the rulers of that day and age. You're going to have to set all that aside to do that. And it seems that he was willing to do that. And it kind of gives me some hope there. Mm -hmm. It gives me hope there. Well, and that's what Mark is particularly interested in kind of the... the, um not like the secret messiah but but it, the the kind of a mysterious messiah really for a lot of his gospel you get these little hints at Jesus uh, uh being the messiah but there's a lot of also these commands in Mark more than some of the other gospels about him telling people not not to say it out loud but i also wonder if some of that command cuz obviously you've got professional mourners at your house and then all of a sudden your daughter's alive again so somebody's putting 1 plus 1 equals 2 you know and realizing something has happened. But this command, I also wonder, came kind of came not only just for Jesus' sake as the, the suffering king, but also kind of this for the sake of Jairus and his household, knowing yeah. what this would cost him. Yeah. And 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 I swear I've read somewhere, and again, I couldn't find it, so don't quote me on this, but I feel like one tradition, um, kind of legend of early Christendom, puts Jairus at the crucifix. And now he he was a, a leader in the synagogue, not in the Sanhedrin or on the, in the council in Jerusalem. So he wouldn't have been kind of part of that particular story. But, but almost like Nicodemus, by finding themselves in that part of the story, they are risking life and limb. Because, yeah. I mean, again, like this is a very still a, a, a survival culture. Like, if you do not have a job, you die. If you don't have someone that's going to, you know, help you out, 
there, there really aren't kind of built in really the structure that's built in to help you is your family and as Jairus as the the head of that household if he loses his job because he aligned himself with this crazy uh carpenter turned rabbi he could lose his family could lose everything and i think jesus recognizes that and says okay you have risked everything to to call me teacher and lord master and I am willing not only to give your daughter life back, but give you an opportunity to still have life. Yeah. And, and I, I think that's not something I've ever picked up on before in the story. But um, Christ comes, right? And, and says, yeah, life, literally life, but also just quality and blessing of life. And that doesn't mean everything goes smoothly. We're not going to slip into prosperity gospel there. But um, Christ has come that, that, that there can be assurance of joy and abundant life even in the midst of these kind of crazy chaotic things that are happening yeah and i actually think that's a, a great place to end this program it is the gospel it is good news well thank you for joining us this is kingdom of the logos us doing our nazarene open university looking at history getting our minds stirred so thank you for joining us and on that god love you and have a blessed day